and welcome. My name's Carl, and I'm a psychologist, the director and founder here at Bloke Psychology, and also your host for what is the Bloke Psychology Podcast, where we discuss everything from men's health, mental health, psychology, relationships, masculinity, and pretty much everything that relates to being a man in today's society. Today's guest is Mr. Terry Cornick, aka Mr. Perfect. This is a really powerful episode, and I think that everybody who listens to it will take something away from Terry's journey. He shares with us the raw details of his own journey through mental health and finally getting the support that he really desperately needed for many years, and how his own journey led him to creating the charity Mr. Perfect that is doing some truly amazing things around Australia, encouraging men to socially connect, take care of each other, but most importantly, take care of their mental health. Let us know what you think, guys. Enjoy. And we are live. Welcome to the Bloke Psychology Podcast again, guys. Today, my guest is Terry Cornick, aka Mr. Perfect. Terry, thank you for joining us and thanks for giving us your time. Yeah, you're welcome, mate. Thank you so much for having me. So, Terry, uh, we are recording today on Friday during the corona crisis. First things first, how's that all impacting your life up in Sydney, up in New South Wales? Um, it's funny, actually. I'm, um, I live on the northern beaches and uh, I was reading something yesterday uh, in the paper about how people in Melbourne uh, are abiding by the rules a bit better than Sydney. <laughs> And uh, I think I've seen that where I live. I'm not sort of bagging my, you know, neighbourhood out or anything, but people are not abiding by it as much as they could, I think. Um, no, well, I you, got, you guys community... were a national disgrace a few weeks ago. Oh, no, exactly. on Monday, weren't you? Exactly. So there's, um, I think the communication's been vague around it and I don't think it's been great. I think it needs to be black and white for everyone and just say, look, stay in, only go out if you need to do X, Y, Z. But the... There's a lot of surfers around here and the surfing community just kind of take this as, well, surfing's exercise. I can go out for as long as I want and do what I want. And it's quite funny. It's um, it's quite relaxed. It's just, it's they call it the insular, yeah, insular peninsula, right? From Manly up to kind of Palm Beach. <laughs> and um, you're not far from the city, but you're quite removed. And it's a great atmosphere. Like, it's a great place to live. Very relaxed vibe. Some incredible people, like down-to-earth people. But it's also very relaxed in that sense. So I'm getting a a sense that when I go out, I get my coffee in the morning and that's kind of about it. Um, but uh, it's been okay. Like my day job, I can work remotely. I work in healthcare and recruitment and consulting. So we can do that from anywhere, which is fine. Um, and then Fridays, I'm, uh, this is my Mr. Perfect day. So uh, I get to come to a co-working space, which is very sparse at the moment. Um, there's not many people here, which is great. So I've got a lot of room. So I'm dealing with it okay. So. Oh, excellent. Well, it is that fine line between what is deemed essential, isn't it, by exactly. the government? Now, so Friday is your Mr. Perfect day. And as I said, you know, we really appreciate you taking an hour out of your day to speak with us. For So for those who haven't heard, what is Mr. Perfect? What What is it and uh, what does it involve? Sure. So um, Mr. Perfect itself as the kind of entity, I guess, is a, a grassroots charity, uh, first and foremost, we provide community and connection to men um, across Australia. We do that by holding community barbecues. So we currently got 30, um, or did have uh, 30 physical barbecues running across Australia. Um, we, I think I'd, get, I'd say like our, our product or our service is definitely community and connection. And off the back of that, for the betterment of mental health and also to reduce isolation for men, really. That's excellent, Terry. So how long, how long have you been running this? So officially, uh, just over four years. So early 2016 um, is when we kicked off and we started to sort of, uh, it became an informal movement and then has gradually grown and we then became the official sort of incorporated association and a charity and before you know it, we're here now and um, it's been incredible. It's been an amazing sort of four or five years. One thing I love about it, I know when I first came across it, is it, it's just so Aussie, isn't it? It's, it's yes. getting men around a barbecue all around Australia and just having a yarn almost. Yeah. I mean, is that is that the beauty of it? Is that why it's been so successful, that it is it, it resonates with Australian men, but it is getting back to the basics? I think so. Look, it's ironic. Like I'm 
although I might have a slight twang in my voice now, like I've been here 11 years from the UK, um, noted very early on that the barbecue was a staple of, uh, of Australian culture. And my wife bought me, I think, nine or 10 years ago, so only been here a year, and bought me a Weber, uh, Weber Q. <laughs> and I remember it was just like my baby from day one. Like I, I looked after it like, <laughs> like nothing else. And my mates would come around and just go, why is it so clean all the time? And I would use it a lot, like weekly. And we would have these barbecues at my house where I'd just buy massive leg of lamb and get a lot of people over. And it just became, I don't know, it became my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had kids and that's kind of stopped. We've done less of the barbecue. But the reason the barbecue, I guess, I'm there uh, out of parks in Australia or going past places and feeling very grateful, I guess, years ago. And I noted that there's all these public spaces and you've got, free barbecues and you'd never have that in the uk right there the only time we had a barbecue was when you know the week of the year it was hot and we go down to tesco buy one of these the kettle ones for 20 pound put some charcoal on it it would take four hours to warm up we'd all get sunburned the food would be undercooked that was kind of the way that was the cultural you know barbecue thing in the uk so here it became about really us noticing that having that open space um there was no science behind it i think i just realized that it wasn't confronting to have over the barbecue. I was very good at cooking and chatting to people. And that was the very basics of it. And then what evolved out of that is that we realized people could talk to me. They could ask me a little bit about my story and it was very casual and I could tell a little bit about it and you could see their brains sort of whirring away and they're like, oh, okay. And later on they come over to me and say something about their story. And it never felt like a men's group or something yeah. really intense, like looking each other in the eye. And, you know, that was something that I realized jumping from nothing, which was what I did, to suddenly into a professional environment in front of a psychiatrist where you're, you know, you're literally trying to tell them every 30 years of stuff. Um, I think we kind of realized that the barbecue just works. And yes, it's, it's the vehicle, like it's different for different groups and people, what makes, what works for them. But also in that open space in a park, you can escape if you need to, uh you can you know i've seen guys loop around the park a couple of times before they walk over i did i would do the same myself i've seen people in the car who said to me yeah i had to wait in the car and you know to build up a bit of you know confidence to come over and then they can get away if they need to there's no there's you know there's nothing binding them there but we're there for two hours regardless so the barbecue is brilliant I, I love barbecuing regardless but um it just seems to be a great vehicle for it yeah, the irony that it took a uh, uh, a guy from the UK to come over and set this up in Australia around barbecues is not yeah. lost on me. I didn't, yeah. I didn't even think about you know that just the environment because it is so open and guys can you know do a few circles, hang around in the car, suss it out a bit. I think yeah, that that's 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 probably a really key foundation to why mm. it is so successful as well. And I, I think as you said being able to do something whilst sharing your story. I mean, mm. you know, it, that goes back to that whole how blokes connect, doesn't it? You know, yeah. we, we rarely go, hey, mate, let's catch up for a coffee. It's, you know, let's go do something. Let's go for a hit of golf. Let's go kick the ball let's, and whatnot, which exactly. makes it a lot easier because it's not and core I, core focus, is it? Well, that's it. And I think I was just talking to a doctor last night about it and he said, um, you know, his fitness is his thing and doing workouts and stuff. And he also prescribes to his patients and, you know, literally the ones that are in, a, I guess, a serious state or a more serious mental state, look, you getting up every day and walking around the block and or walking down to the, the post box is, is the first step. And then he kind of built out to, well, workouts with other people work for some people. And, uh, you know, you, you as guys might chat over serious stuff while you're doing that. Football for some, you know, sport. Um, the barbecue is just, is seen to work really well, but not just because of that, but Again, we didn't have any science behind this, but recently I did some digging when I wanted to write a blog about it, and I actually found some science that backed it up. And there was a couple of studies in from uh, I think Psychology Today or something or similar, a US version, and they were, they'd literally done studies about why the barbecue is a great connector and everything. I was like, wow, yes, it's been it's been confirmed. I have to send you the links, which is hilarious. I, I just I found two different ones which were brilliant. They weren't like in depth stud. They weren't. I guess what you guys would call like an academic kind of journal study, but it was in a journal. It was, you know, had some basis to it and why it worked. So, hey, yeah. if it's been published, we'll we'll take there it. Go. I'll send some links. <laughs> so, what one of the core tenets, obviously, of Mister Perfect and the barbecues mm. and, and the whole premise is that social connection, which mm. I know, you know, recently we first chatted on your weekly Mister Perfect mm. uh, reconnection hour on Thursday nights. 
on Mr. Perfect's Facebook, so check it out. But uh, mm-hmm. that the reconnection hour, so one of the core foundations is connection. Mm-hmm. What role did that play in your own life and how did you sort of come about the idea of creating Mr. Perfect? Definitely. So uh, without too many gory details, but um, I got to 30 years old and uh, had suffered a number of mental health issues, you name it, uh, sort of PTSD from some things that happened when I was a kid or growing up, um, had a lot of anxiety, uh, depression, um, definitely was suicidal at times and was very close to, you know, I guess taking my life at times and um, confronting all of that. I'd never really addressed it properly. There was a couple of instances when I was in the UK, like periods where I tried to address it. So, for example, um, I think I knew as early as, when my doctor asked me how how long have you felt like this and I said I actually can't remember when I didn't feel like this and he kind of sat back like oh this is you know this is probably quite serious and I remember as young as sort of eight nine years old feeling suicidal like definitely didn't and didn't know how to deal with that and that was you know that's why my doctor thought it was so serious when I told him and um I just bought I was very good I was very uh I was an introvert I was quite academic, but I was quite quiet. Well, I was very quiet. I was a mute, basically, sometimes. I was, everything went on here, so I could write. I was, I'm a writer, so I could I could write down my whole thought process or something in a lot of detail, even from an early age, right, whether it was um, something creative or whether it was something about what I was feeling, but I couldn't speak it. So I was very good at just staying quiet, getting my head down when things happened, just, you know, hiding, basically. And I did that for a long time. And then I had sort of periods where it would come back and bite me hard. So maybe at sort of 16, started going out with my mates drinking. Um, and drink was never a, a great thing, regardless for anyone, right? It's a depressant. So it would be times when I drank too much. Like, well, it didn't happen often, but, and this whole emotion would come to the fore. And, you know, like it would be a, just a complete emotional breakdown. But the next day, by the end of that day, it was all forgotten and tucked away again. And I don't know if many people saw it now looking back at it, but I'm pretty sure some people were aware, but they didn't know how to deal with it with me, including my own family, because they'd suffered their own sort of challenges. Um, and then it really its ugly head again when I went to uni and I hit kind of a wall. Uh, and then maybe again when I was 23, and it just came back in these waves. I'd always felt it and it always gone through, but I describe it to my doctors as periodic. So it might be every f- few months it would just blow up and maybe no one else saw it it just blew up with me in my room or it might have been someone close to me a girlfriend or or something so I I knew like I knew what was happening and then at 23 I guess I'd come out back from uni um was really lost like I knew I I certainly was not arrogant in any sense I was very not confident I knew I was half intelligent and that I could do a good job at something and I wanted to be a writer but had no confidence to interview anywhere. I couldn't look people in the eye. I couldn't describe what I wanted to describe. And I think I got to that point where uh, around 23, 24, and one of my mates said to me, and he wasn't even like the sort of guy that would talk deeply. He just saw me one day at a lunch break at work and said, you look like the world is on your shoulders. And at the same time, the girl said to me, I was seeing at the time, like the color has just gone out of your eyes. Like they look gray. Uh, she just oh. younger than me, a couple years younger, should have been 21. And she just picked it out. And I just whoop, like lost it. I was born my eyes out and uh, then brushed it under the carpet again. I carried on. And around that time, a mate of mine I played football with said, I'm going to Australia. Do you want to come? And uh, it was so, that was not the sort of thing I would have done. I'd not traveled much, anything. And for some reason, I went, yeah, okay, let's do it. Um, he went out there first, had an Aussie mate he'd met. Uh, a Camp America trip I said we can just stay with him and we'll go up the coast and I did it and I remember being on the flight coming over going what am I doing like this is the worst decision and I got here and was completely underwhelmed but we were going up the coast drinking and doing all sorts of things and I think I managed to repress a lot of it again um, and again on that trip it reared its head we went around the Gold Coast had a big night out drinking and uh, I came back and I remember standing on like the balcony of our sort of hostel there and I was looking over and it was probably the closest moment where I feel like I was, I was going to jump. I just looked down and went, well, like it's now never like I'll do it. And thankfully I didn't went back, like went back in my room, went to sleep. And um, again, day or two later, I brushed down the carpet, didn't address it in the proper right way. Didn't tell anyone. Can I just pause you there for a minute? Sorry, I don't want to interrupt the flow, but just that moment, because I'm mindful that a lot of people who probably listened to this would have experienced Mm -hmm. a moment like that at some point. 
for you, if you're able to, I know it was a while ago, take us back to that, mm-hmm. what, what do you think the one thing stopping you from taking that step was? Uh, I don't know. I've already sort of, you know, it, it's, I've gone over it a thousand times really. Um, it definitely wasn't like a, a, a conscious strength in me that I noticed, okay, well, I've got this far. So, you know, maybe I could, I think I thought more about my family. I think like maybe my mum or I think in that moment I was like, I can't do this. Like for them, it wasn't for me. It was kind of, I can't do this. I can't imagine I'm on the other side of the world. And maybe my logical brain kicked in a bit and said, you know, what if I did this? And, you know, I'm literally here on my own or with a mate, but this is the worst, you know, stupid decision for now anyway. That was kind of what stopped me, I think. Okay. I had no real coping mechanism at that time. Um, and then again, as I said, the next day, it was like it never happened. You know, I didn't tell anyone, I just carried on. Um, and that was kind of like my traveling experience. I uh, was pretending I was having fun and doing these things. And then my visa was coming to an end. And long story short, I actually met my now wife the second day I was here, went and stayed with her with a bit and experienced kind of a different, I don't know, uh, family dynamic and lifestyle, I guess. And then just went, right, I'm going back to the UK. This is another sort of chapter under my belt. Let's get rid of it. And I went back and I wasn't in a good space when I got back. Um, my wife actually came back because she was already traveling in the UK and Europe. And um, we then decided after a while, well, why don't she said, do you want to apply for a visa to come back? And I said, okay, <laughs> did my classic. I, if I can escape this now, this reality, then it'll be great. And I'd already done it once, but I did it again and was surprised when I turned up and the second day in Sydney when I got my visa and I'm at uh, Sydney Harbour and I was just the most underwhelmed. I went, this is not what I expected. And I just kind of realised in that moment it wasn't what was in my, like the physical surrounds to me. It was my head, like it was in what was inside. And um, again, didn't go to a, a doctor or I may have had a very brief visit where they just went, oh, you sound depressed, here's some medication, off you go. And I didn't take it. I think I took it for a week and then just pretended again it didn't happen. And at that point, around 25, I just got my head down and joined a healthcare company that was small at the time. And for somehow, like I did what I was, it worked in my favor for work that I hid it because I got my head down, I worked hard, I built a pretty successful lifestyle, which I never would have had in the UK or didn't think I could achieve. And within a few years, we, I was back with my now wife. We were living in a place called Mossman in Sydney, a beautiful place, like living in a nice apartment on the water, going on holidays, doing everything that we wanted to do. But every few months, it was ruining its head again. It wasn't as, as intense because I was in a good space. Everything else was in a good space, but it was rearing. And I think I got to sort of 29 just before I was getting married and went, I need to do something about this before I have a kids, have kids, family, you know, all these things. And this year, not 2012, 2013, all these things happened. Like my dad passed away in the UK. He was an alcoholic and had struggled with addiction. I'd gone back to the UK, saw him a day before he died, came back to Sydney, didn't tell my boss or anything, went back, back to work, like just carried on and did my classic coping mechanism. And I stupid, when I look back now, I go, oh my God, like if anyone in my work did that, I'd be horrified, you know. Um, and out of that, I don't know, it was something, it wasn't like a one event, it was just a culmination. And I got married and had a beautiful wedding. It was just incredible, like best day ever. My wife organized it all and we had money, like a good amount of money at the time so we could do what we wanted. And it was just beautiful, like incredible. And I came out of that area and I'm gonna quit my job. I was doing really well and just went, don't enjoy it. Um, I enjoy healthcare, but I, I don't enjoy this kind of hard sales atmosphere. And there was a few things going on that were not good for people's mental health at my work. And um, I guess I I went to the doctors, my GP finally, and sat there and he had this conversation of, how long have you felt like this? And I said, look, I don't remember a time I didn't. It took me about an hour in the car before to build up to go in. And um, then he said, okay, well, there's this really good psychiatrist you can see and and um, here's medication again. And like, he's a lovely guy, he's, he you know, still is. It's not my GP now, but um, I went, okay. and didn't question it, thought this is what you do. For the next six months, went to my psychiatrist, took my medication, did what I had to do, but it just took everything out of me just to build up, to kind of spill my story on my on the doctor. Mm-hmm. It didn't. I didn't get anything back from it. I got the release, which was really important at the time. Like I unloaded everything, but I felt like I hit that point that day where 
I don't know, six months after that where I, we didn't go any deeper and I couldn't get past it. So I was chatting with some mates and I said in the pub one night, I had a couple of beers and I said, look, I'm going to see a doctor at the moment. And it's about this. And so he was, my mate was talking about his knee injury and surgery. And I just went, sorry, I'm going to say it. I'm seeing a psychiatrist. And they kind of looked at me and it was quiet for a minute. And then they went, well, actually, yeah, I've seen a psychologist for this, for anger issues and anxiety and this. And I saw one for this when I was 21 because of all this family stuff. And we both, we all looked at each other and just like, what are we doing? Like, we've known each other this long. I've not really had this chat. And um, around the same time, I read a report by Beyond Blue in November, which was about men's connectedness, social connectedness, and this big, thick report, which probably only like academics read. And I was there on a Sunday just highlighting bits. And there was just one page that showed this graph of men post sort of 30, and it just showed how their kind of social connections just dropped off. It was a big survey. And it just went like this, this line. And they were asking guys, when was the last time you had a serious chat with a mate or caught up with a mate? And it got to a point where some of them went uh, two years or I don't know. or And that line on this graph, I just went, okay. So it was like, it was five, three or four, I don't say three or four, five separate things that happened that eventually culminated in me going, well, we enjoy football, uh, me and my mates. So let's set up this kick around on a Sunday. We didn't enjoy the, the club we we're playing for. We'll put an ad on Gumtree. We'll call it... Um, uh, Mr. Perfect, like football kick around, something like that. 40 guys turned up and we were, we were just astounded. Uh, and the guys of all shapes, sizes, backgrounds, some of them sat down afterwards. It was two hours of running around in January, like 38 degree heat. And we're all exhausted like afterwards, but it never, it felt so good. There was guys sitting there chatting to me. I'd never met. And they said, Oh, I don't remember the last time I did. I haven't played football since I was 20, yeah, 20 years late. And we just went brilliant. Like we've, we've connected something, something's working. And out of that, that's kind of how it branched off. So we set up a football team, which is now really successful, but the charity went from these meetups as, as kick rounds into a barbecue. Um, and it just evolved from there. And I guess it's helped me, it's helped me somewhat on my, my, I say journey now, but the last five or six years for me have been about a lot of testing, experimenting with treatments, strategies you know learning from people who are um people like yourself like and just really absorbing everything and i'm definitely the whole point of mr perfect is this is i'm far 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 from perfect like i i still haven't found what works for me completely um but i do have a lot of purpose in my life now and that has certainly helped um i found i know some things i should avoid but i still do them (laughs) but i know some of the things you know, I, I need to be doing more regularly and I try and stick to them as well. And I guess that's the premise with Mr. Perfect. The people that turn up are far from perfect. We, there's no judgment of them, anything that they've been through before or up to that point. Um, that's how kind of it's it's evolved. And I think that's why it's worked. It's been um, not deliberately relatable, but I think people have certainly related to the Mr. Perfect ethos of the world expects us to be um, perfect or we think it does, meant to be, you know, everything to everyone you've got to be sensitive sensitive at this point you've got to be strong here you know you've got to be a provider here but you've also got to do this here at home you've got to do this here and when that breaks you know it's the perception we have of other people around us everyone thought i was mr perfect i had the world i was living in Moscow, my one of the most expensive places to live in australia I had a job I had a beautiful wife I had all these things and i i seriously was i at my unhappiest at times um and no one knew that. And it took me to do it. Like no one could bring it out of me. I think that's the point. It took me to kind of um, uh, to ask for that help. And there's some accountability there as well. So, yeah. yeah wow. Terry, that's such an incredible story. I mean, I was saying to you before we hit record earlier, I purposely didn't listen to much of your story earlier because I really yeah. wanted to hear it for the first time uh, here. I mean, that that's so powerful and such an incredible origin story of Mr. Perfect. And it, I mean, just talking about you know you were you were living the life so to speak. Yeah. One thing that rings true for me, and I hear this with so many clients, is they'll say, "On paper, my life is awesome, and I yes. should be happy." And I'm sure you can relate to that. That you yeah. know you tick all those boxes that society says we should have or achieve, but still deep down, you you knew that something wasn't right. Hundred percent, and that, I think that's even so now. Like I look at it now, and I've got. 
Um, I think the, the difference for me now since sort of four years ago becoming a dad and having a four-year-old and a two-year-old, um, your world, like the shift that that places on it, I, I didn't appreciate what that would do to my mental health as well. Um, it certainly didn't, it wasn't catastrophic for it, but it was a shift. And I think what's happened since then is I placed all this emphasis before on this thing I had created and I had to keep up this facade. So and the lifestyle, just, you mean? Oh, everything, yeah. And yeah. it was never me. Like I look at it now and go, none of that stuff is important to me now. Yes, I, I want to live in a half-decent place in Sydney. Yes, my kids need a roof on their head. But material things have never, because of where I come from, it would have never been a big thing in my life, ever. And when I had it, I just felt the biggest fraud ever, ever. <laughs> I, I couldn't. And now people look at me and go, oh, but you've, you know, I, I think the, the charity and the work I do, this is the most rewarding part that I do. But it, well, what's nice about what I do is the other parts of my life are in healthcare as well. And, and I now bring that to it. So I used to think of them as separate hats that I wear, and they kind of are, but at the same time, I connect with people now, doctors, I can ask questions that I never would have asked before. And when you get past that layer, I'm chatting to doctors who, again, I think should have everything, like earning literally some of them in local contracts, you know, two and a half grand a day. And I go, your, your immediate head goes, ah, oh, they must have it all, you know. And then you, you dig a bit deeper and you ask some questions and you chat and you just go, they've got the same stresses and kind of, um, what's the word, imposter syndrome that I have. And there's, there's many people out there like that. But now for me, it's it's different. It's different stresses. It's kids. It's it's living. It's having all these commitments. But this is a better way of living. Uh, I, I say to people when they say about well, people have asked me, well, do you worry that this will affect you know future jobs? And I said, look, if anything, it's actually it's made me a lot more uh, me, and I feel more comfortable. I'm certainly not where I want to be, but it's actually increased. Kind of people's interest in in what I do in my day job and this and everything because they they go don't tell don't try and sell me this like tell me about this thing I saw you doing on LinkedIn <laughs> and then we have this great chat and we connect and that was the whole point right I connect with people that I never thought I would connect with in one chat um, and that for me is like the fuel um, and I think we can replicate that with what we're doing Mr Perfect that's that's kind of what we're trying to do. Um, yeah. Well, it's that authentic connection, isn't it? It's not yeah. that facade anymore. It's that authentic human connection, uh, similar yeah. to this, talking about real experiences and not just that stuff. I mean, as I think about, you know, you living that life, you know, I have so many clients that talk about that same thing where I, I often say to them, you know, the amount of times I've said this, you know, it almost sounds like you've got caught on that treadmill of life yeah. and popped your head up and gone, hang on, this is not what life's about this is not giving me meaning purpose or or happiness for you though because again you know bloke psychology we get a lot of clients come when shit hit the fan or whether last resort they've tried to reach out many times mm. how hard was that for you because i mean it was it sounds in your backstory that throughout even your early years and your 20s you probably knew deep down something wasn't right oh man i i tell the story of when i was would have been around the time where it was pretty bad periods of 22 23 and I was at home and like some people had gone out and I'm sitting there on my laptop and I thought I googled symptoms of depression and bear in mind this was 14 years ago so it wasn't as prominent to do something like that and it wasn't as kind of out there that you would <laughs> mental health was talked about as much and I think I came up with the equivalent of beyond blue in the UK and I, it gave you like eight things on the list and I went okay so but yeah yeah no, no. Okay, so I've got six of them. So that means I haven't got depression. And I put the laptop down and I walked away. Six out of the I eight. Know, yeah, and I knew <laughs> I deemed that as, well, if I don't have all of them, I haven't got uh... it. I haven't got it. And I labeled it and I did all these things that a lot of people do and go, well, if I've got that. And again, my head went, well, if I go to the doctors now and my work's already not that supportive right now about me going to a dentist appointment, what are they going to think if I go to a doctor and at some point and got me to go to a GP um, through the NHS or uh, the mental health facility that was close by. And Sorry, so you, just, yeah, you, just dropped out. you just dropped out oh, two okay. seconds. Uh, you were just talking about how the work, your work wasn't supporting yeah, so, you a dentist and how are you going to go anywhere else? And well, actually at that point, I think my mum kind of somehow said, she couldn't really talk to me about it very well, but she said, look, let's get you to a doctor. So 
I booked with, um, uh, I don't even know what it was. Like I, this is the education around it at the time. I just had this letter, a referral letter to, to go and see someone in a week's time at the mental health facility at the local hospital. And I think it was a psychologist. I think I've actually still got the letter somewhere. And I canceled it the day before. Like I didn't tell anyone and I rang, I rang them up and said, no, I'm not going, like work won't let me go. And again, didn't, all these times I was close to getting help, I didn't. Um, and then I sort of dabbled with that again when I came to Australia, but again, was just given some medication and that was horrible. Like the first time I had to go to the GP to say, this is how I'm feeling. And I couldn't express it verbally. I wasn't as skillful as I am now speaking about it. So they kind of went, okay, it's okay. Here's the medication. So it was a lot of false starts for me, like over the years. Mm-hmm. And then when I finally did it, I sat outside in, in the car and like for an hour, I just literally opposite the GP practice going, okay. And it, it was, my heart was raised, everything was going. And when I got in there, I was very lucky, like the GP who, regardless of whether he wasn't skilled in mental health treatment, which many GPs are not, he he was very empathetic about it. So he made it easy for me to do it. But he knew something was up because he asked me some leading kind of questions into it. And I tried to do the classic man thing. Oh, yeah, so I've got a bit of a cold at the moment. Um, and then, oh, yeah, this is other thing I want you to check. And then it just led into, like, actually the big thing is, it was textbook now. I think about it. I've got mates who've done the same. And uh, yeah, it was. It wasn't nice because I was doing it. I had the the view, the view of the world that I was quite a, a individual and a, a loner in some respects. Anyway, even though it looked like I had all these sort of friends and networks and everything, so it wasn't easy. But I've always been a bit stubborn like that. I would do it on my own on my own kind of terms. Um, and I just did it. And I remember coming home, telling my wife, and she was happy because she was like, "Look, as long as you're doing this." Uh, and then I went down the route of the, you know, the psychiatrist and the, the psychiatrist was really useful for what it, for me downloading everything. It wasn't useful for me to start working on things. So I kind of worked backwards in a way I went yeah. to the more serious end and then I've come back and tried some non-clinical things. And then now I go, I see a psychologist. So I, I, I was seeing him monthly, um, haven't needed, felt needed to see him for a while, but checked in every few months now and, um, for, for, for professional stuff, um, I'm okay. Like I know, I don't want to get to the point though, and this is what I'm preaching, that don't get to that point where you feel you should reach out. Even my psychologist tells me, I don't want to book something in now because I know you're going to only reach out to me when you're in crisis, so don't do that. And he's very clear about that. Like he's like, if you feel you need to do it, please, I'm always here. Um, but we're telling people with Mr. Perfect, like, uh, you know, this is non. This is pre-crisis. Yes, there's guys going through something that turn up, but this seriously needs to be um, a starting point for you. And if that's the GP, then it needs to be your GP. Like find one, um, try and work hard at finding one, which is tricky to find one that you might gel with or that can that can help. But mm-hmm. we always just say, like, don't do what I did. <laughs> don't leave it that long because it only took a couple of triggers for me and we might not be sitting here, you know, so... Well, that, that's what rings true for me, Terry. I mean, you you came so close to being one of those six of eight guys a day who take their own lives and being a mere statistic and not having this conversation today. And what, people why? ask me now, they say, well, why do you feel, do you ever feel suicidal now? Do you ever get to that point? And it's a weird, it's a strange question because the way I describe it to people is, yes, like I consider sometimes when I'm not in a great space, would it be better if I'm not here? That's very different though. I try to describe this to people who don't understand. It's very different to me being in a point where I feel like the world's going to end and I can't go on. It's just a, a thought that may cross my mind and like I work a lot on CBT and some practices that go, okay, that's coming to my head right now. Why has that happened? Let's work through that. And also not always trust what I'm thinking. That's just kind of yeah. a, I've always been so stubborn that I thought, everything I thought was correct and that I was telling myself correct. And that doesn't work when 90% of it's negative or it can be quite dangerous. So for me now, it's just knowing when that comes and when it does arrive, I only have to look back to the day or two before the week before what's, what's really triggered this. Is it an argument with my wife? Is it uh, stressful times at work? Is it, um, 
I'm not eating right, which is terrible for me. Like I don't eat enough and like I don't eat always as regular as I should or drink enough water. All these things add up. Like there's so many different variables. You can't just pick one and go, oh, it's that. So that's the reason I'm feeling this. Um, but I can easily see where I've led into that. So, Well, there's such a big difference, isn't there, between that sort of fleeting thought of suicide mm. or self-harm versus, as you said, the world is ending, that genuine thought with intent and desire to take mm. one's own life. What, why do you think you went to reach out for help a number of times but then cancelled mm. or backed out? What do you think that was Absolutely about? Absolutely now, when I look back, it was shame. Pure shame, guilt. I was working with them. But this is a theme for a lot of people, I guess. But um, in a place in the UK, it was particularly kind of militant. And it was it was good training in the way it kind of did what it did. But... Um, yeah, I got the from day one. I got the impression that if even anyone left for twenty minutes to do something, like it was seen as like a no go, and you didn't leave until this point. And it was it was a weird scenario. Now, when you're in that, and you're quite a, I was a bit of a yes man, and I had until I was thirty, I was just sort of kind of submissive in that sense, and wasn't a confident person. So I didn't believe in what I truly felt. I just went along with it, you know, like as it was easier. And I think people picked up on that and used it for their advantage. So I just went, oh, if I tell them. Or if I try to go out and get to the GP and it even gets out a little bit to someone that I've gone and seen a GP about my mental health, you know, 12, 13 years ago, maybe longer, I was like, that's it, I'm done. Like the shame of that would have caused me probably to do some, you know, that I'd regret or, and I, I, that's seriously, and I look back now and think, yeah, that's 100% what it was. And I led up to those points of attempting to get help. And it was almost, it was cries for help all the time without knowing it, I was doing things that were crying for help. And like, and but I just couldn't do it myself, couldn't reach out and go. Mm-hmm. Um, and then those stop starts, I guess the time I did eventually go, 29 and kind of, I guess, caught us the, ter- the turning point in my life, I guess, in one sense. It really was the thought of, uh, we're going to have a family soon. Um, things seemed quite, st- I was quite stable at that point as well. So stable in that it, I wasn't, um, yeah, I guess I was just stable generally in life. I was, I was fairly content at that stage. And I went, if I don't do it now, I will let this pass again and then we will have kids and we'll do this and I'll make another decision where I you know, start a new job and it will be, this is the time. Like it just felt right. And it just felt at that time six years ago maybe that there was a bit more talk around mental health that I'd noticed and I was reading more mm-hmm. and I picked up on things and I just went, this feels right now, you know, like it, it did and I did it and I'm glad I did it. Don't don't get me wrong, like that treatment process, I've stopped started a thousand times of the GP, the psychiatrist, the psychologist, this, that, that, that. But uh, I'm very wary of it now and I know what I need to do if I'm, if I'm going to have better mental health. So, yeah. It was definitely so, the shame. The shame. So that, that that shame. I mean, I'm sure your workplace isn't fully to blame for that, and just given society's narrative around men reaching out yeah. for help traditionally. But I think it's important to highlight that if you did have a supportive workplace with a very different culture back then, mm-hmm. that could have encouraged you to make that turning point decision Absolutely. a hell of a lot earlier. I've got a great uh, employer now. That like helps. That he's also one of my best mates. Um, in my day job and he's just been in, he, he's not the sort to talk too deeply about these things at all but at the same time from the day i mentioned it or he actually picked up on it i remember this we were in manly we're sitting there having a beer after work uh and he just went um so you post a bit a little bit more about mental health on your social media now <laughs> and he just had it was that moment of oh, shit i'm just going to say it so i just again it was another one of those little chats i had and that was about five years ago and I just said it and then he was like I think that's really good like whatever you need to do just let me know if you ever need to leave don't feel like you have to make a scene and like tell me because just go he goes just send me a text after and you know and that was amazing right because I didn't then I wasn't the guy even now like at work I don't really talk about the Mr. Perfect stuff unless someone asks me they know it's there they see it on social media they know it's prominent but I don't feel uh, I don't feel I need to shout to the world about it but at the same time, I feel so comfortable mentioning it. If someone asks me, I think they're surprised the answers they get because I'll tell them for half an hour about it all. I just yeah, say yeah. it like it's, I feel comfortable saying it. If they ask me, I'll tell them. And they're normally asking because a friend of theirs or something is happening in their life which they feel a little bit uncomfortable about. So, yeah. 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's that per- permission, isn't it? Because yeah. I can relate to that just through our clients that so many, especially who come during the day, will say, no, no, my boss is very supportive, says just go, don't worry about it. You know, you go once a fortnight, once a month during work hours, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Versus that sort of culture that you experience. I mean, when we look at barriers for men for seeking help and getting support, there's so many. And so I think if anybody's listening who is a boss or has, you know, is a manager within an organization or runs a small business, that's really important to keep in mind mm. because, you know, I really shudder to think that, you know, how many men who have become sadly suicide statistics that if they had a just a supportive workplace or supportive boss or something like that where they're spending 38, 40, 50 hours a week there, that could have made the difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think I am. Um... Yeah, I'm so lucky now that I get to do that and have that ability to just say, yeah, I'm going for a walk or, you know, I'm not tied to my desk or, yeah, I need to get out early today or I need to – and there isn't an explanation around it. I think it's, it's important also to note I've seen this rise of, you know, there's a lot of businesses that promote very prominently how what they do for mental health and et cetera. But I know from people working at some companies, it's not actually what's going on on the ground all the time. And it's very one thing to say it. And pretend you're you're really supportive of it it's another to actually do it and i don't think businesses i also personally this is my personal opinion i don't think a, a, a corporation in its sense of what it is and what it's supposed to do i get that they don't need to be responsible ultimately for your mental health but they do need to support you getting treatment for it and they do need to support your well-being while you're at work like that's a given right and it suits them if they go that extra mile then and they help you outside of work then Wow, Definitely. like then you're obviously going to feel more safe and comfortable and, and more respectful of your employer. So it's, you know. It's well, and long term, it's going to have a positive impact on their bottom line. Absolutely. Isn't Absolutely. It? Um, a few months ago, well, a few months ago, it was last year, actually, I was doing a men's mental health breakfast at an organization, which I won't name, and I was giving a speech and presentation for about 30, 40 minutes about men's mental health and what we do and, you know, just some psychoeducation around that. And at the end, we always have questions and answers. And there was a few managers sitting up the back. You could tell by their body language and their tone. They, they were quite senior in this organization. Mm-hmm. And I think one question that always stuck with me and comes up when you're talking about this is that I was sort of saying, you know, if you're, if you're a manager or you've got the, the power in the organization to give people a mental health day, not ask questions, yeah, exactly. that is so powerful. And this one manager put his hand up and he said, how can we trust that they're not going to abuse that? How can we – where's the line? And you could tell he was a black and white sort of thinker, quite rigid. Yeah. He said, where's the line between genuine mental health? Mm. And so because he was asking, you know, like you said, the, the criteria of depression. Now, that's a very medical sort of model. You know, how mm. can we tell if they have it? So if they have it, we can give them time off. But if they don't have it, then we should – And I, it really hit me. I thought that that's yeah. the challenge that we're up against, especially in corporate at the moment, yeah. that unfortunately a lot of the senior management in those sort of corporations are older gentlemen, much older than ourselves. Mm-hmm. So they were raised in an era where this mental health wasn't discussed. And for mm-hmm. us to change the culture and the narrative in big organizations in particular, it's very challenging, very challenging, yeah, but it's, critical. It's, it's massive and also... Um, I just don't know. Look, is it? It's almost. It's not wasted time trying to change that perception of those particular people. But at the same time, you hope that this is not something overnight that happens, right? We've probably been talking about this seriously in Australia for maybe almost a decade, where it's kind of gradually grown that people are taking this more seriously. Um, it probably be another decade before there's a real change, like a mm. true real change. Um, but the, the upside, and I'm, I'm very optimistic about it, my own experiences of it have been really good. I can't, I, I, can't, I can't fault my employer at all for the support they've given. And it's maybe what it does is then makes me want to put in that extra effort when I need to or I can see others struggling. As yeah. I said, like they, they notice. I don't even have to ask them. Like They'll tell me if something's happening and we just go for a walk. We take it out of work. We go for a walk at lunch. We chat. We come back. And you can tell, like, they come back going, oh, someone does give a shit. That's <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> little things like that. I don't know. You don't have to be uh, trained as clinically to do that, you know. Um, 
So, no, no, fuck no. I mean, that that yeah. that right there, I mean, that walk when somebody feels understood and, ah, he gets it and he's noticed, that, that can be that one thing, can't it? Stopping exactly. somebody from stepping off that ledge or making that decision. Mm. Now, mindful of your time, Terry, but one thing I do want to ask you a bit about is because it is it is so well it's, it's becoming more common which is great mm. but it's so rare to get to uh i suppose grill a bloke who's been through therapy because mm. uh, i would love to get a lot of my clients up and do this sort of thing but of course we yeah. can't because of confidentiality <laughs> so for those blokes who might be out there wondering what counseling what therapy involves what they're going to get out of it you know can you talk to us a little bit about that what that what's that journey been like you know from 29 you described as your turning point seen a psychologist seen a psychiatrist what do you got out of it how have you found it beneficial and what's been challenging so i guess my first thing i'd say is even though i worked in healthcare daily five years previous to the point where i went to get professional help and i knew what these um different types of specialties kind of did mainly like i kind of got you know i got healthcare i didn't know the system very well the process but even though i knew those things if i look back now and things i could change I would go armed with a little bit of education to my GP first, like just just a little bit. Like I would, mm. there's plenty of just blogs out there. We've got one on our site, I'm sure on a lot of psychology sites and psychologist sites they've got them. Here are the 10 steps of the process. Like be prepared that you first go to your GP and then they will, you know, do your mental health plan and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this is probably the avenue you should take right now. It's not for everyone, but I didn't get that. so it jumped from nothing to everything and then told, oh, you're going to a psychiatrist. And I just thought, that's for crazy people. <laughs> and boy, was I wrong. Like, don't get me wrong. It was really, it was incredibly beneficial and it was needed. It just wasn't probably the right way around or maybe I didn't know it's need to go to that step yet. So with the psychiatrist, just basic personal experience, that was more about the, um, you know, them assessing me clinically and whether I needed medication. That's kind of how I break it down for me. That that was what I got out of it. Yes, I got to download a lot of stuff. Would I have preferred to do it a different way? Maybe because the first few sessions, I just, I was really clammed up the first couple. And then when I let everything go, I literally like 30 years out. And that was exhausting. It was really exhausting. And, um, you know, I kind of stepped back those sessions. And then when I finally kind of came back to it and thought, I'd say to people, be prepared to do some hard work. Like there is some accountability. Like if you're really going to take it seriously, be patient, do research, ask if possible friends or good like counsellors and psychologists and, and whatnot they've seen, but also for GPs because that's going to be your starting point. Um, but also be prepared when you go that um, they know what's best for you. Like say so I went in with the perception that I needed to go over 30 years of stuff, whereas my psychologist said, I, I t- tell the story all the time. Like I wrote down like a, a Google doc of my medical history and just went, here it is. Here's all the stuff. Don't want to. And I think I was kind of asking in my head to say, I kind of want to go over that because I think this is the problem. Whereas my psychologist sat there and just went, I'm really grateful we did this, but I think we need to work on this. And I think it's to trust in that process. Do not expect after kind of the first, second, third, fourth, fifth session, you're suddenly going to make gains that are, you're cured and you're never going back to see a psychologist or, or a counsellor in any way. It's difficult to tell people to be open to the process, but a good, I guess, uh, counsellor, psychologist will will come to a, your level and talk to you in a way that is not clinical. And mm. if you want to know the clinical stuff, like I do sometimes, I ask, they tell me. But Truly, it's getting you comfortable in your head that you're going to have some strategies to move forward rather than going back. And look, maybe that's what some people need. I just had this chat with a doctor last night. They said, look, some people need that. They need to go over that bit first. And I already did that. But be very patient. Do your research. Take your time. Um, Definitely ask around. Word of mouth seems to be the best way to do this Um, because it's really tricky, even with all the tech we have and directories and everything online again it's just a name on a, a piece of paper and if you really trust your gp then get them to suggest one like 100 yeah. percent, do that or if you really trust that someone's gone through a great process that you know of, ask them and just say you know i'm not asking you to tell me this is going to be great for me but 
Um, can you suggest someone? And I know friends who've gone through nine, 10 psychologists before they found the best one. And the best ones, or the best one for them, and the best ones will say after the first, second session, I don't know if we're right for each other as well. They're not going to prolong it for you, just for you to sit there and you feel like, you know, you're looking at the clock. Um, so it's a game of patience. Um, you've got to know that deep down they've got your best interests at heart and um, you can't, you just don't expect overnight kind of success, you know. Um, that tiny baby step, though, is a massive step. But in the scheme of things, just doing that, you've probably done, I think my psychologist tells me, he says, look, you've done like more than what 60, 70% of guys have done already. So don't be so bloody hard on yourself. Like <laughs> This is a massive yeah. thing to actually even attempt to, to step in that room. Um, well, yeah. because the, I think the worldwide average and I'm in counseling in sort of psychotherapy, psychology of sessions attended is about three or four. Mm. And I think what often happens is what you alluded to a bit earlier is i know i see this in clients they'll get some symptom relief they'll get some insight they feel like they're making yeah. a bit of progress they go ah yeah you know blokes were pragmatic i don't you know it's probably a waste of time or money if i go back things are all right i'll manage on my own that self-reliance they get a bit complacent but they haven't really done much of the work that's just the mm. beginning and I'm not mm. not saying that you know everybody needs to be in therapy for years because that's not a goal at all. For some blokes, that is enough, but for a lot, especially if you've experienced like yourself those sort of episodes on and off, on and off, and you've always known something is beneath the surface, it is a real process, isn't it? You know, it is a, it is a lifestyle change in every sort of area of your life. You can't beat yourself up. And also, I, I used to beat myself because I go, I've started this process and I've stopped it again, or whatever it may be, but. I'd just say, like, be bloody kind to yourself because just going to that first one's important. And then, yes, if you let that kind of routine slip of doing it and you didn't go back for a while, just start again. Like, go again, keep trying at it because you will get there 100%. Like, uh, I know from all the guys I chat to, eventually they get there and sometimes friends I have to kind of, you know, say, like, a little bit of encouragement that I found it. And I, I found it purely because I saw someone present and I thought I'll look them up and then I kind of did it the other way around and went to my GP and said, look, I really want to go and see this guy. Can I make this happen? And they they worked around the corner from each other. I never knew them, but they went, okay, I'll trust in that. Like you go and let, and the good thing that GP did was they checked in with each other and kind of sounded each other out as well afterwards, which was excellent. I was amazed by that. And that worked really well. Um, and then they started referring more people to them because they saw it worked. So, um, yeah, it's patience, it's being kind to yourself with it. You're already making a massive step. However, you're right, like it's hard work. Like you've got to, in between those sessions, it's not just go to the session, download, <laughs> walk out, life's good again, month later, do it again, because you'll just see a cycle. There's, there's got to be some, you've got to be prepared to go a bit deeper in between the sessions as well. well do things like we're doing, you know, yeah. come to uh connect with other people that might be in the same boat you know like do that in a social setting as well in between your sessions mm. well because as i tell a lot of my clients the the change comes about by what you do out of the session doesn't it exactly. you know exactly. for for me the, the analogy i use is when you're in session it's my job to help facilitate explore things maybe teach you a few things but really primarily it's holding up the mirror to go ah, yes. i think this is what might be going on what can we do about um, this and then it's up to you to put in the damn hard work outside of sessions. Well, the best advice I had, the last one I did uh, with my psychologist was, he says, Terry, you, you pick up like that 10% point in the day where you've done something that you deem is not good or you've, you know, you've just lost it with a kid, you know, you're just in a mood or you've said something you shouldn't say or because you beat yourself up like, over that. And he said, work back to the start of the day. He said, you woke up, you put your clothes on, you brush your teeth, <laughs> like you got ready for the day. You made yourself breakfast and you changed your kids' nappies. You did this. You cleaned the house before you left. You did. He said all these things, like build them up as like your little increments as your 10%. Give yourself a pound on the back for like functioning that day and making an effort to, to start that day well. He said you, you're counting like this tiny little bit over here, which you're having massive guilt about. And that's really helped me. There was, there's a few, few things, you know, he suggested that I've gone – no, nah, not for me, or like I haven't tried them, or I've tried them and gone, probably not for me. But then there's also stuff that it's just been really simple but really powerful for me that I have to work on. However you do that and remind yourself, 
you've got to work on it in between. You've got to. You're not going to get anywhere just by going back and downloading it each time. You know, letting yourself get to a point and then going. It's, you've yeah. got to be a bit proactive with it. Because that's the other thing I think blokes struggle with a bit when it comes to therapy and mental health. You know, similar to that manager asked that question is that especially if you look up mental health and depression, signs of depression, it is very medicalized. So yes. when you go into therapy, you know, one, one thing I always talk about is your depression, my depression, his depression on paper could all look the same, but in reality, it looks vastly different. Wildly. And it's, yeah. it's not like you come in, have depression, we give you these six sessions of CBT, yeah. we go boom, 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 and see you later. Because if that yeah. were the case, we could just record a video and boom, publish it, and we wouldn't need psychologists or therapists. So we'd all be cured, right? Very well, that's it. it yeah. but, but actually getting guys to understand that, that it's not this medical thing. It's not, I mean, there's parallels between physical health, health issues and mental health, mm. but it's not like, okay, you have this cancer or this sickness, so we give you the medication to treat exactly. it. It's about, okay, what's going on for you? Maybe we should try this. Have you thought about this? I'll teach you these strategies, whatnot. Does that hit the mark? No. Okay, what about this? Okay, so that had some Im Im improvement. That that really hit the mark. Let's do a bit more of that. Let's explore that a bit further because what works for you, what works for him, what works for me, despite on paper us all having the same thing, is going mm. to be vastly different, isn't it? And you picked up, a, you made me think of a point, like don't have a judgment. You can judge, that's human, right? You're going to go into it with some judgment of what you think this is going to be about. Or I sometimes do it, I go, oh, why would I go and do meditation? Or like I, you know, I look at other people, the way other people deal with their mental health sometimes. And I have that human judgment straight away. I'm like, oh, cynical about that. So why would I do that? But if you can get out of the way before you can go in with as open mind as possible as you can, you're probably going to be really surprised what works for you. Like it might not have to be something so extreme that you think is going to work for you. So also just having an open mind, try and erase some of that judgment before you go in. Um, I think it's probably good advice. No, it's something I have to talk about when uh, teaching those real blokey, blokey clients some yeah. mindfulness. I love that initial judgment. The, the what? Yeah. I'm going to sit there and do the what? So just remove the judgment and give it a crack. You want me to think? Then, yeah. yeah. And the amount of times they come out and go, mate, that was, that was fucking weird. That was awesome. There you go. <laughs> so, Terry, I'm mindful. You know, I want to let you go because you've given us just about an hour of your time on your Mr. Perfect. No I'm sure you've got a ton to do. But for anybody listening who sort of relates to your story uh, and what you went through and still your journey now, what would your last last words of advice be for them? Uh, look, ultimately, don't believe everything you think <laughs> like all the time because you can sometimes live in a bit of a bubble in your own head that the external world outside you is the same or is, you know, it's a great day outside and um, your own judgment can sometimes be your undoing uh, or a lot of the time. I know that for me. So just try and be kinder to yourself. Um, there's some real simple things that you can, I'm just noticing more because of this whole COVID thing. Yes, it's it's been bad in one sense. In another, it's made me just reset a lot of things and think about what's truly important. Um, and certainly my health at the moment is like my top, priority mental and physical like it's my top 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 priority and i think you need to put that uh, to the forefront of your mind regardless of what's going on externally yeah and just be kind to yourself love it terry self-care persistence and uh seeing this as a process and a journey i've yeah. absolutely loved it terry uh i think i could chat to you for another few hours about your story but i'm sure we'll have you back on in the future if people Amazing. want to find out more about mr perfect or go to their local barbecue which i believe are virtual at the moment but hopefully yeah, it's virtual. only a matter of time before they're back up and running in person yeah. how can they find you and find out more about mr perfect Excellent. So uh, two things I'd say do first go to our website, which is mrperfectmrperfect.org.au. You'll find everything you need on there. There's, um, there's a list of all the barbecues we run. There's links to our blogs, which have been quite helpful as well in the past. People have noted. Um, there's also links to we have a partnership with SANE, uh, mental health charity for the more. Uh, they have some forums on there, which are really great, which are uh, I guess, designed by psychologists as well and have mental health professionals that, that run them. So they can be a great outlet as well for the more, I don't know, clinical stuff, I guess we call it, but also Facebook. So if you just go on Facebook, we kind of built a bit of community there. 
type in Mr. Perfect into Facebook and you'll come up with our page. But there's also a really great community we've built, like a private kind of community um, that we share a lot of stuff in there. Uh, it's just been increasingly helpful at this time. So two things, website and Facebook, um, you'll find us there. Excellent, Terry. And just to reiterate that, I actually used to work on the same forums as one of the moderators. Incredible place, oh, really supportive. Yeah. It's Thank you again. Oh, it's something we haven't promoted enough. And I'd say uh-huh. it, it's incredible. It truly is. We've had some great feedback on it. So make sure you get on it. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very supportive environment with people with uh, lived experience and uh, moderated by health professionals. So <laughs> get on it. Thanks again, Terry. Mr. Perfect. Check it out on Facebook and Google it and check out their website, Get Down or Barbecue. And thank you, guys. We'll chat to you soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks again for tuning in to the Bloke Psychology Podcast. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review, share it with a friend, or subscribe to the podcast. If you want to contact us or find out any more about the work we do at Bloke Psychology, just go to blokesecology.com.au. Take care, guys. Yeah, now it's the angel's